lottery swindle, whipping post law in Kentucky, horrible wife murder, a clever forger, killed over a kiss, food frauds, and much more. On today's episode of A Year of Crime is reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. Please note that some articles use language considered offensive by today's standards. The Lottery Swindle at Bloomington, Illinois. Bloomington, Illinois, February the 11th. This afternoon, two confidences men relieved George Bradner, an old citizen and retired merchant, of $5,000 by the lottery swindle and made good their escape. About noon today, a well-dressed-looking stranger entered a First Avenue store that was full of customers and made a 20-cent purchase. In paying for it, he tried to confuse the clerk and get away with $5 a change that had been offered him. The clerk called the police, however, and turned him over to them. On the way to jail, the prisoner broke away from policeman McKinney and ran, whereupon the officer fired a pistol shot at him and brought him down with a flesh shot in the back. He was then carried to jail. He was registered at the hotel as A.K. Foster, Springfield, Missouri. A supposed Confederate registered as H.D. Young, Atlanta, was also arrested and jailed. They seemed to be accomplished fakers. The police caught here today Jim Hudgens, a recently escaped convict from Decatur, Georgia, sent up for killing a man in Atlanta. He will be taken to Georgia at once. Kentucky Legislature, Louisville, Kentucky, February the 11th. The state senate at Frankfort today passed a bill establishing a whipping post for wife beaters. A Negro fatally injured by a railroad train. Special to the appeal, Bolivar, Tennessee, February the 11th. Yesterday, a Negro named Austin Bradford, while attempting to board a freight train going south for the purpose of stealing a ride, fell beneath the wheels and one thigh was crushed and the other leg badly lacerated. He will probably die. Rights of the Chinese. The persecution of the Chinese on the Pacific coast is assuming proportions that are discreditable to us as a Christian people and dishonorable to us as a treaty-making nation. Oregon is outdoing the worst deeds of the San Francisco sandlotters. People there are driving the Chinese away wholesale. They are driven to the steamers at the wharf and in instances forced on board with no payment made of their fare. General Gibbon, who is in command of the district, telegraphs Chief Justice Green of Washington to use his influence to have troops employed for the defense of the Chinese. What he fears is shown when he says, As yet, no bloodshed or incendiarism has occurred, but it is believed that tonight there will be serious trouble. How our blood would boil with indignation if we should read in the telegraph news some morning that the Chinese were in the same manner driving American citizens out of Peking. Yet the Chinese have precisely the rights here Americans have there. Our treaty with China, which aroused the envy of all Europe when we obtained it, says that Americans residing in China shall enjoy the privileges of the most favored nation, and adds, and reciprocally, Chinese subjects visiting or residing in the United States shall enjoy the same privileges, immunities, and exemptions, and expect in respect to travel or residence as may be there enjoyed by the citizens of the most favored nation. Whatever regard or disregard we may have for our moral obligation, we are under obligations here that we cannot disregard. Our Constitution makes treaties along with our laws and along with the Constitution itself the supreme law of the land. The government must interfere. The Constitution compels it. The Chinese have treaty rights which we cannot evade. The well-behaved Chinese have as much right to live in this land as the German, the Frenchman, or the Italian or English. If we cannot consent to their presence, we must abrogate the treaty. 
And while that treaty is a part of the supreme law of the United States, we cannot outrage those to whom we have opened our doors without disgracing the land we are so proud of. If not for the sake of the Chinese, for our own sakes, we must protect those who have come to, to us relying upon our solemnly pledged faith. Should law-breaking roughs and hoodlums be permitted to carry on their cruelties against the Chinese, how long would it be before Bavarians, Italians, Scandinavians, or others would be subjected to similar treatment? For our own sakes and for the sake of peace and good order, violence against the Chinese must cease. They have rights as other foreigners have, and as long as those rights are a portion of our supreme law, they must be vindicated and insured. She ran away with the Negro. A pretty servant girl in New Jersey leaves home and friends. Trenton, New Jersey, February the 8th. Delia Farrell, a young white woman of Summit, and George Gibson, a colored man, have disappeared. Their whereabouts is a mystery. The parties went away a week ago. Delia arrived in this country from Ireland about one year ago and obtained employment as a servant in the family of William Thomas at Norwood Avenue and the Boulevard Summit. She became a favorite in the family. Gibson is 27 years of age and as black as any member of his race. He was employed as groom for Mr. Thomas and was often in the young woman's company. On several occasions, the couple were seen walking together. The girl's brother heard of the apparent attachment of his sister for the colored groom but scoffed at the rumors that had begun to circulate regarding the association as a result of the friendly feeling engendered by the fact that both were employed in the same family. Delia, when questioned, said that although Gibson was black, he was a good man. Michael Farrell fa finally informed his sister that she must cease her association with Gibson. Gibson was also warned by the young Farrell that there would be trouble if he continued his attendance to Adelia, and he promised to take the young man's advice and let the girl alone. Subsequent developments indicate that plans were made for a speedy marriage and flight. It is said that on Monday night, the Negro applied to Father Vassolo at Summit and asked him to perform the marriage ceremony. The clergyman refused and advised him to give up their project, as no happiness could result from such a union. The couple left, and that night they disappeared from Summit. Young Farrell at once started in pursuit. As Gibson had friends in New York, Farrell first went to that place, but after a thorough search, he was obliged to return to Summit. He notified the Newark authorities to be on the lookout for the pair and to send word to Summit if they were found. It is thought they have gone south, where Gibson has friends. Filled him with shot. A sensational killing near Little Rock. Horrible wife murder at Boston, a Chicago bank victimized by a forger. Little Rock, Arkansas, February the 11th. Last Thursday evening, in Ashlett Township, this county, a man named Ben Holmes was shot down by Cecil Thompson. Magistrate George M. Barrow of that township held an inquest over the remains of Holmes on Saturday. The news has just been received, and it seems that Thompson has a stepdaughter named Florence that Holmes was courting. Holmes was a married man, his family residing in the city, so Thompson interposed an objection to Holmes' visits and informed Miss Florence of his decision, but the giddy girl still encouraged Holmes and he continued clandestinely to meet her. Thompson went to Holmes and warned him to remain away. Thursday, the two men met in the woods near Thompson's home and had a long quarrel, which ended in Holmes drawing his knife and threatening to cut Thompson's throat. Thompson was armed with an axe and so kept Holmes at a distance. He ordered Holmes never to enter his premises again. Holmes said he would see the girl or die in the attempt. 
Upon entering his house, Thompson got his gun and returned to the door, saying to Holmes, who was standing at the gate, If you curse me and my family, I will shoot you. Well, blaze away, returned Holmes. Thompson pulled the trigger and filled his antagonist with buckshot from the effects of which he died on Friday night. The coroner's jury returned a verdict that deceased came to his death from a gunshot wound from the hands of Thompson, who is now in jail. Horrible Wife Murder, New York, February the 11th. The Herald publishes the following from Boston, dated yesterday. Michael Doran, a shoemaker, aged about 50 years, is locked up tonight, charged with the attempted murder of his wife, Catherine. Mr. and Mrs. Doran have been married for about 20 years, during which 15 children have been born to them, seven of whom are now living. The couple, who have been living at South Weymouth, separated about three years ago in consequence of the jealous disposition of the husband. The husband visited her there several times, their meetings invariably ending in a row. This morning, according to the story of the eldest son, all of the children remaining with their mother, Doran called at the house shortly after 10 o'clock, bringing his kit of tools with him. After the usual quarrel, he went to the adjoining room to his kit of tools and put something in his pocket. Then he came back to the kitchen and, approaching his wife, seemed to push her backwards. As he stepped back, the blood gushed from her neck, and, catching the cup she held in her hand, the brute held it under the wound until it was half full of blood and then drank it. Doran appeared unconcerned when arrested. He had made no attempt to escape, but stayed near the house until the officer came after him. He admitted that he had tried to murder his wife and said that he had used a shoemaker's knife, telling the officers where he had thrown it. Mrs. Doran will die. Chicago Banks Victimized by Clever Forgery Chicago, Illinois, February the 11th. The fact has just been made public that the first national bank of this city was victimized to the extent of $3,800 by a clever forgery last Saturday. A well-dressed man of middle age appeared before the cashier about noon that day and presented for payment three checks bearing the signature of Fowler Brothers, the Packers. Two of the checks were on the First National Bank for sums amounting to $2,300. The third was drawn on the Metropolitan National Bank for $1,500. The cashier looked at the checks and the man who presented them and then told him that he must be identified before he could receive any money. The stranger then displayed several letters of recommendation from well-known citizens. Still, he was refused payment and so withdrew. Half an hour later, he reappeared and presented the checks for a second time. They then bore the signature of R.D. Fowler of the firm of Fowler Brothers, together with the letters OK. This endorsement was deemed sufficient and the money was paid. The stranger quickly departed. When the check on the Metropolitan National Bank reached that bank through the clearinghouse, its officials at once notified those of the First National Bank that Fowler Brothers had no money on deposit with them. An investigation followed, and the three checks were soon discovered to be forgeries. The man who secured the money on them is believed to have accomplices. The officials of the First National Bank secured a good description of the swindler, although they could furnish no information by which he could be directly traced. The matter was at once put into the hands of a detected agency, but as of yet, no clue has been found. Killed About a Kiss Madisonville, Kentucky, February the 11th. T.J. Beale shot and killed James Brackett, his young farmhand, at the home of the former five miles from here Tuesday night. Brackett had been charged by Mrs. Beale with attempting to kiss her. He called her a liar, and immediately the two men drew pistols. Brackett fired first and missed, and he was instantly killed. 
Cheeks Swindles, Clinton, Missouri, February the 11th. Another of Cheeks Swindles has just been divulged, illustrating the simplicity of his forgeries. He made a loan in 1884 to Frederick F. Burge for $800. Burge subsequently paid him $600 on this, and Cheek entered it into record. But in the bond given to John Hurd of Bridgeport, Connecticut to secure the loan, Cheek deftly turned the two into an eight, and now Burge is in for the additional $600 which he had paid Cheek on the loan. Loss caused by policeman's stupidity. St. Louis, Missouri, February the 11th. John P. Molly's livery and sale stables burned at an early hour this morning. The fire originated in the hayloft from some unknown cause and spread so rapidly that it was well underway before the fire department arrived. The employees of the stables who were on the scene at the time turned their attention first to saving the horses, 65 in number, and had taken about seven of them from the burning building when two policemen arrived and thinking that the employees were thieves, clubbed them into insensibility and thus destroyed the only chance of saving the stock, and the remaining 58 horses were burned to death. The total loss is estimated at $12,000, insurance $3,000. Food frauds. The shameful use of lime and alum in cheap baking powders. Many food frauds, such as chicory coffee or watered milk, although they are a swindle in a commercial sense, are often tolerated because they do not particularly affect the health of the consumer. But when an article like baking powder, that enters largely into the food of every family and is relied upon for the healthful preparation of almost every meal, is so made as to carry higher injurious if not rankly poisonous elements into the bread to the imminent danger of the entire community, it is the duty of the press to emphatically denounce the manufacturers whose avarice has prompted them to such diabolical operations. Among recent important discoveries by the food analysis is that by Professor Mott, the United States government chemist of large amounts of lime and the cheap baking powders, this is, if not the most dangerous, certainly the most useless adulterant yet found in the low-grade inferior baking powders. It is a startling fact that of over 100 different brands of baking powder so far analyzed, comprising all of those sold in this vicinity, not one of them, with the single exception of the royal baking powder, was found free of both lime and alum. The chief service of lime is to add weight. It is true that lime, when subjected to heat, gives off a certain amount of carbonic acid gas, but a quick lime is left, a caustic so powerful that it is used by tanners to eat the hair from the hides of animals, and in dissecting rooms to more quickly rot the flesh from the bones of dead subjects. A small quantity of dry lime upon the tongue or in the eye produces painful effects. How much more serious must these effects be upon the delicate membranes of the stomach, intestines, and kidneys, more particularly of infants and children, and especially when the lime is taken into the system day after day and with almost every meal. This is said by physicians to be one of the chief causes of indigestion, dyspnea, and those painful diseases of the kidneys now so prevalent. Instances of the most serious affections of the latter organs from drinking lime waters found in some sections of the West are noted in every medical journal. Adulteration with lime is even more to be dreaded than with alum, which have heretofore received the most emphatic condemnation from every food analyst, physician, and chemist, for the reason that, while alum is probably 
partially dissolved and passed off in gas by the heat of baking, it is impossible to destroy or change the nature of the lime in any degree, so that the entire amount in the baking powder passes with all its injurious properties into the stomach. When we state that the chemists have found 12% or one-eighth of the entire weight of some samples of baking powder analyzed to be lime, the wickedness of the adulteration will be fully apparent. Pure baking powders are one of the chief aids to the cook in preparing perfect and wholesome food. While those are to be obtained of well-established reputation like the royal, of whose purity there has never been and cannot be a question, it is proper to avoid all others. So a little side note, that kind of sounds like an advertisement, doesn't it? Hmm, interesting. Kingston, Ontario, February the 11th. Friends in this vicinity have been advised of the killing of six of the mounted police near Regina. They await the confirmation of the report. They have also been informed by their northwestern correspondents that a rebellion is likely to occur in the spring. Montreal, February the 11th. A dispatch from Edmonton says, At the police barracks here and at the fort, the men are still in a state of insubordination and are doing much as they please. At the latter place, recently some of them became intoxicated and after locking the commanding officer in his room, continued their debauch in which they damaged the kitchen furniture. The citizens await with considerable interest the outcome of the affair. A rejected lover's suicide, a Baltimore librarian shoots himself through the heart. Baltimore, Maryland, February the 8th. Mr. John K. Randall, librarian of the Mercantile Library of this city, committed suicide this morning at his boarding house, number 1009 North Charles Street, a fashionable quarter of the city, by shooting himself through the heart with a bullet from a Smith & Wesson revolver. It is plain that the suicide was caused by blighted affection, although the fact that his father, Dr. Burton Randall of the United States Army, had been in the insane asylum for years, leads many to believe that there is a touch of hereditary insanity in the case. Mr. Randall, for nearly 10 years, was engaged to a young lady of Annapolis, who was recognized as a belle in that city, and who about six months ago jilted him. A short time since, the public announcement of her engagement to an officer of the Naval Academy was made. This preyed on his mind and undoubtedly led to his suicide. He killed himself while in bed with all his clothes on, though he had bared his breast so that he could reach his heart. On the t his table beside his bed lay a copy of Victor Hugo's Shakespeare in French. Between the leaves lay several sheets of paper with notes and translations of the book. The last paragraph of comment was dated 2-7-1886, indicating that Mr. Randall had been at work on the translation yesterday. He was at his post at the library during the day yesterday and also during the evening. Mr. Randall was a native of Annapolis but had resided in Baltimore a number of years. He was graduated at St. John's College and was a member of the bar. He was about 32 years old. He had a law office on St. Paul Street, but never cared particularly for the practice of law, but was devoted to the study of literature. He was a man of wide reading and scholarly taste, which led him into the study of almost every branch of literature. He was a great collector of old books, and the library which he had gathered together had in its many rare and curious volumes. His fondness for collecting curiosities, however, did not end with books. Every species of bric-a-brac, pictures, and above all, firearms of every description had an interest for him. A singular coincidence is that at 11 o'clock today, a dispatch was received at the Mercantile Library addressed to Mr. Randall, announcing the death of his father in the government hospital at Washington. The father, Dr. Burton Randall, had been an Army surgeon since 1832. 
He was retired in 1868 and had been in the asylum ever since. The Negro Nelson, accused of having attempted to outrage several white women, was released by President Haddon yesterday as he could not be positively identified. And that concludes the news for February the 12th, 1886. Please join me tomorrow for another episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.